Hi, welcome to Inclusion at Work, where we show the value and abilities of people with disabilities. I'm Larry Rothstein. Today's guest is Dr. Lisa Aizoni, a professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School, a fellow at the Radcliffe Institute, a researcher based at the Health Policy Research Center and the Mogan Institute at Massachusetts General Hospital and the author of Making Their Days Happen, which is a look at personal care assistance and people with disabilities. Most recently, she is the lead author of a study of physicians' attitudes and practices towards patients with disabilities. Welcome, Lisa. Thank you for having me, Larry. Uh, I just want our listeners to know a little bit about your personal background before we launch into the most recent study and your book. Uh, so can you take us back to when you were first at the Harvard Medical School and were diagnosed with multiple sclerosis? Oh, Larry, this will show how old a person I am, which I'm actually okay <laughs> with. I'm <laughs> really okay with it because, as you know, they've said, consider the alternative. So I am very much a pre-ADA person. Um, I started having symptoms of MS when I was 22, but I was young and invincible, didn't um, pursue them, um, started medical school at age 26 at Harvard. And at that point, I could no longer avoid paying attention to them. Um, and so I ended up getting an appointment with a neurologist um, for the end of the first semester at Harvard Medical School and was told that I basically had a classic um, history of relapsing, remitting multiple sclerosis. Um, he had me come back the following month for some noxious test because believe it or not, MRI scanners did not exist at that time. <laughs> um, kind of making light of it, but it was a pretty hard time. You know, it was 10 years before the Americans with Disabilities Act. It was also during a period um, in which people viewed their health problems as a private matter. You know, there was no Facebook. People didn't talk publicly about things. Women were even embarrassed to say that they had breast cancer. There were no pink ribbons anywhere. And um, it was a pretty tough time. Um, you know, suffice it to say that I was able to get through medical school with um, some modest accommodations, um, was going to graduate with my class, but as I was um, planning to apply for an internship residency, was told that the medical school had decided that they would not support my application, that they would not write a letter of recommendation for me to become an intern or resident. Therefore, I was unable to go on for training. I graduated in June of 1984, immediately became a research assistant. Um, that was the only job that I could get. Um, and so that's basically if, if a summary of yeah, my history. Yeah, if you don't mind, just going over a few points that, uh, so when you got the diagnosis, uh, were you fairly isolated in dealing with this? Did you talk to anybody at the school? Did they make any accommodation for you uh, in terms of supporting you or giving you help or? Okay, well, um, when I, now remember, this is a long time ago. So this is the early 1980s. And at that time, 
when a Harvard medical student was diagnosed with something big, like an incurable neurodegenerative disorder like I had, basically it was communicated to powers that be. And the very first thing that happened is that I was removed from my assigned academic advisor who was a physiologist and I was transferred to a new academic advisor who was a psychiatrist. And the first time that I went to go see him, he said, I am here to be your academic advisor, not your friend. So that was kind of a clue to me that this was gonna be a tough time. Um, and trust me, this was a period of time when the um, prevailing advertisement that um, the MS fundraisers had out there was quote unquote, MS crippler of young adults. And so that was what was in my head, MS crippler of young adults. And, you know, as my mother so helpfully at the time said, we won't know how it's all going to turn out until it ends, you know? And so it's true, you know, MS is a very unpredictable disease. Um, one thing that my um, neurologist basically insisted upon was that because of the fatiguing consequences of the disease that I could not stay up um, for taking on call, which this was before the 80 hour work week of physician trainees had been instituted. And so it was considered a badge of honor to stay up for days on end, you know, like an entire weekend when you were doing a surgery rotation. I was not able to do that. And because of that, I was accused by various attending physicians of not having pulled my weight. Um, and um, it was just, you know, basically a tough time. Um, when it was nearing the time for me to apply for an internship residency, um, I went to one of those dinners that Harvard arranged with its students where they fed you cheese cubes and sherry and you sat down for dinner with leaders um, throughout the Harvard academic system. And I sat next to a very tall man who was the CEO of a major academic medical center affiliated with Harvard. I described my situation to him and he paused briefly, uh, steepled his fingers and said, there are too many physicians in the country right now for us to worry about training a handicapped physician if that means that some people get left by the wayside, so be it. So that was basically what the prevailing attitude of the time was. And, you know, in, at, at this point, I can obviously, it's, it was decades ago, talk about it with some assertiveness, but I trust me, at that time, I felt nothing other than, um, how can I get through this? You know, what's happening to me? Um, I, I had no idea where I was going. It was kind of like I was deer caught in the headlights. Yeah, so uh, one of the things you wrote discussed how some of the, the deans at the medical school literally passed the hat to raise some money for you as a yeah. stipend, I guess. I mean, it was like, that blew my mind. <laughs> it's like, oh my God. It wasn't a lot of money, I think, like $3,000. It was $3,000. Yeah, you know, if they had raised $50,000, it wouldn't be so bad. But I, yeah, like, 
Well, at the time, the prevailing starting salary for an intern was 26000 and so. My understanding from lawyers is that this constituted constructive dismissal where they didn't outright fire me, but they made my life so untenable that I had nothing, I had no option but to leave. So although that's a long time ago, one of the unfortunate things is that, as you know, there has been movement in the last few years uh, among companies, some major companies to hire people with disabilities and attitudes have changed. But unfortunately, the unemployment rate is astronomical among people with disabilities. And the kind of prejudice you face then, as listeners will find in the most recent study of physicians, isn't that far afield. I mean, it's a magnitude removed, but it's certainly nowhere near where it needs to be. So unfortunately, uh, but fortunately for us that you got into research. Uh, so if you can talk a little bit about how that happened and where it took you over the last few years. Yeah. So basically I was going to have to find a job. Um, and I interviewed for a number of position, uh, positions. One um, person told me that I couldn't possibly have a full-time job because I would only be working 40 hours of work and full-time for that person was 80 hours a week. Um, another person told me that he could do one of three things. He could hire me because he felt sorry for me because of my MS. Or second, he could not hire me at all because of my MS. Or third, he could look at my CV and see if I was qualified. Um, he did offer me the job, but by that point, my gumption had returned a little bit and I said, no, thank you. Um, the way that I got a job was that I had had a prior master's degree in health policy from the Harvard School of Public Health. And the dean had been aware of me. And so the dean, um, Howard Hyatt at the School of Public Health picked up the phone and called a friend of his at Boston University who hired me. Um, by the time I had finished medical school, I was walking with um, two canes. And um, during the first or second week of my new job as a research assistant at Boston University, my new boss asked me to bring him a cup of coffee. I'm not sure exactly how that would work if you're using <laughs> <games>. <laughs> Well, the old you balance know, the cup on your nose trick. Exactly. But so. that was a situation where kind of gender discrimination and disability discrimination kind of overlap a little bit. Yeah. Um, but that was how I got my first job. And, and to be honest with you, Larry, I... It wasn't where I'd wanted to be. I'd wanted to be a practicing doctor, but given that I did have the prior health policy degree, I had some knowledge upon which to kind of build a career. And it was a time when there were major health policy changes happening in our country. And I just happened to be in a place where there was a lot of work to be do, done, a lot of research to be done. And so, um, and I had some great colleagues there at BU who are still friends to this day. So I was very fortunate um, in where I initially landed. 
and then you wound up back at Harvard. With I did. There's a good I, I, turning point in the story, right? I, I did. So um, there are a number of reasons that I won't go into for why that happened, but I did land back at Harvard on April Fool's Day of 1990. Um, it, so that was, you know, six years after I left. And, um, and I... Um, it, it was interesting because I ran into people who had offered me those jobs, but couldn't remember anything. You know, they, they welcomed me back to Harvard as if, um, you know, as if I was this kind of returning hero, because by that point, I'd done a lot of health policy work and, um, and they obviously didn't remember some of the kind of appalling things that they'd said to me back all those years earlier. And at that point, you know, I kind of made a decision that I wasn't going to go back and shame people. That just wasn't what I wanted to do. So I've been very careful not to reveal identities of people. Um, but it was, it was interesting. Yeah. You, you made this comment uh, that people sometimes said to you, we never think of you as disabled, which mm -hmm. you don't take as a compliment. And it, it, if you could explain how you feel when somebody, I mean, that's sort of like they welcome you back. Now now you're okay because you're not a, a physician. Now you're a researcher and they can accept you. And, and they actually can't even remember what they did say, you know, a few years earlier, which they probably do remember, but they repressed it because they don't want to think they're jerks. Yeah, that that may be the case. You know, I'm I'm not going to try to psychoanalyze anybody. I think that um, that the experience that I describe, where people, you know, say um, we don't think of you as disabled, is probably not an unusual experience. Um, you know, again, it's meant as a compliment that they don't see the fact that you're using a wheelchair, but of course they do. They're just kind of like choosing not to pay attention to it, but why not? You know, that's just part of the way I get around and the way that I live differently in the world than other people might. And so I think that um, the, the more important thing to say at this point in my personal history is that I have been taught by my four years at Harvard Medical School not to talk about my MS because they couldn't cure me, they couldn't treat me. I was basically a failure of the medical system. And so don't talk about it. And so I didn't talk about it. I started using a wheelchair in 1988 because I'd finally seen some sense. You know, I was tired of falling and I was traveling to Washington DC a lot and had to bring a suitcase with me and I couldn't carry one when I was using two canes. So I finally started using a wheelchair, but it terrified my wonderful colleagues when I started to, because they thought that my MS had worsened, but no, it was just that I'd finally seen some sense. And it wasn't until um, I was promoted to full professor at Harvard Medical School in 1998 that I felt, okay, it probably would be hard for them to fire me at this point. Um, and so maybe I'm safe enough that I can start talking about disability. Plus it kind of hit me that by not talking about it, I was perpetuating stigmatization. 
you know, I was continuing kind of ableist and discriminatory attitudes that I was ashamed in some way, but I wasn't. It's just hadn't been kind of part of my community. You know, I think when people um, get new disabling diagnoses and are not part of a treatment community, for example, the way that people with spinal cord injury might be um, right after their injuries, um, that they are alone, that they don't realize that there's a community, a rich and vibrant community of people with disabilities out there. Yeah, but just let's go back just chronologically. So then you began doing research and for many years you've been studying uh, physicians and disabilities and uh, how this world interacts with medicine. Yes, so um, I started doing work on disability and healthcare experiences of people with disabilities starting in late 1990s. Um, my primary areas of focus have been primary care, um, cancer care and reproductive health care. And that's been a long time now. So, um, you know, more than 20 years and I won't um, take time to go through everything that um, I was able to find. But what I will say is that um, my research methods have been twofold. I've tried to use data sets when I've had op you know, options to do so. It's very, very hard to get data about disability. And so the best data comes from federal surveys, but there have been some great federal surveys that I've been able to use to look at screening tests, to look at um, cancer experiences, et cetera, but also a lot of interviews with people with different types of disabilities. So I probably interviewed over 300 people, um, both in individual interviews and focus group interviews, people with disability. Uh, and so you brought this to bear on uh, this recent study that just came out within the last few weeks and a, a previous study that indicated a physician's attitudes towards the issues of disability. That was a bigger I think over 700 physicians were interviewed. Is that right? Okay, so um, so in late 2019 and early 2020, complicated by the pandemic, we did the first ever national survey of outpatient physicians caring for adult um, patients with disabilities. Okay, so I was fortunate to lead that. It was funded by the National Institutes of Health. Um, again, we surveyed physicians in seven different specialties, um, and we had um, used best practices in terms of de of designing the survey. Um, and best practices for survey design are first to do interviews with the kind of people who you want to participate in the survey. And so I conducted 20 individual interviews with doctors and then had moderated three focus groups with doctors. And so the recent study that came out in the October 22 issue of um, Health Affairs went back to the focus groups that we had conducted in 2018 in advance of designing the survey. But the survey, I think, you know, the focus groups gives texture to why we might've found what we found. But I think the focus, the um, survey findings themselves 
are pretty um, stark and tell us the story of how physicians feel about caring for people with disabilities. Um, for me, the biggest take home message was that 82% of doctors think that people with disabilities have worse quality of life than other people. Only 42% of doctors feel strongly confident that they can provide equal quality care to people with disability as they provide to other people. Only 56% of doctors strongly welcome people with disabilities into their practices. And guess what? 68% of doctors fear at least some risk of an Americans with Disabilities Act lawsuit. Not surprising because 71% of doctors don't know the proper way to determine the accommodations that patients should get when they come to see the doctor. Yes, that was startling to me to see how high the level of ignorance is. So if let's just go through some of these things. So one is just physical accommodations. Uh, they don't they don't do a lot of that. Well, physical accommodations, we look specifically at people with significant mobility limitations and um, people who cannot, for example, independently transfer onto an exam table. And so only a third of doctors usually are always use a height adjustable exam table in that context for people with mobility disability that make it impossible for them to transfer independently onto a height adjustable exam table. And let me just parenthetically say that a vanishingly small number of doctors use a Hoyer lift or any other sort of transfer device. So um, basically they, you know, two thirds of doctors are not using height adjustable exam tables. And only 22% of doctors use roll on weight scales that would allow somebody who's a wheelchair user to roll on and be able to be weighed in their wheelchair. Yeah, I had that, I, I had that actual uh, experience when uh, my hip was very bad and because of the pandemic, I kept putting off uh, the surgery. And uh, I remember the last time I went to see Alice, you know, trying to get up onto the, the table was really hard. You know, I could, I, you know, I could do it. Uh, I had enough arm strength to do it, but you know, <laughs> they were watching me and I thought, you know, this is what I'm trying to tell you. <laughs> it's really hard to do this. And I'm not moving from a wheelchair. I just put my two crutches away and then I sort of hoisted myself up somehow and they helped me swing my legs around so they could look at me. So it's just, it's really bad <laughs> that that's where we are in terms of awareness about physical accommodations. There's also communication issues uh, for people who are blind, people who are deaf or hard of, hard of hearing, but not really totally deaf, you know, which you should, yes. should comment, comment on. Yes. So, um, you know, one of the things that um, was important was for us to do the preliminary interviews before we designed the survey, because even though I'd already, you know, over the course of 20 years interviewed over 300 people, there might be new things that I would learn through interviewing physicians. And I was startled to find 
in my individual interviews with physicians. But they can't print off in large font printed materials for their patients who have low vision and want materials in 16 or 18 point font, which is kind of astonishing. You would think that printing off materials in large font ought to be a pretty easy thing to do, um, but they can't. The other thing is about 50% of doctors when they have a patient who is deaf or hard of hearing, simply talk louder to that patient. <laughs> oh, that always works. Yes, yes. <laughs> it's interesting because one of my favorite pro you know, group of people who I interviewed many, many years ago was people who are deaf and hard of hearing. And they would talk about how their doctors would be yelling at them and how disrespectful that felt to them, you know, to have their doctors simply yelling at them. Or else, you know, the doctors um, in our survey also said, you know, almost about 50% of them also said, well, all we'll do is just speak to the patient's companion. You know, so assuming that the patient comes in and they're not gonna follow best practice, which is to talk directly to the patient, but no, they're going to be talking to the companion, which again is disrespectful and the wrong thing to do. It's also ineffective. Um, my stepmother had Alzheimer's and uh, my father and the caretaker went to the neurologist who was sort of like an older doctor. And he talked and doc, doc talked. <laughs> and my father said, you have to come with me. I don't know what he's talking about. And I did, and I sort of slowed him down and I made him repeat things. But, you know, my stepmother had Alzheimer's, so she didn't know what really was going on. The caretaker was from Mexico and had limited English language skills. And my father was really nervous. <laughs> he didn't want to totally understand what the doctor was saying, but he did want to understand it. So, yeah. I mean, I don't know what the doctor thought he was conveying to these three people until I showed up, but he was just talking and, and the caretaker was nodding and my father was kind of staring. And, yeah. Well, well, an, another thing that was really startling, Larry, was that um, when you have people who are hard of hearing, it's it can be challenging to figure out what accommodation would be the appropriate accommodation. There are lots of techniques now, like a pocket talker or microphones, you know, that can be used. There's lots of technologies. But if somebody is an American Sign Language speaker, Typically, American Sign Language is the appropriate accommodation to bring in, but very, very few physicians ever bring in an American Sign Language interpreter to interact with their patients who are deaf and want to have an American Sign Language interpreter. Similarly, they very rarely use remote sign language interpreters. So it's not surprising to us, um, having found these kind of appalling findings, that, um, that ineffective communication in patients who are deaf or hard of hearing is one of the most common reasons for ADA lawsuits. Well, I can see that. <laughs> uh, so let me do several other things. One is structural barriers, which there are uh, many offices, particularly in rural areas, uh, that may not be even physically 
accessible to people. I mean, uh, they just don't have a ramp or there's not an elevator that can take somebody in or there's no button by the door. Or I mean, I, I can imagine multiple things that aren't there that make it impossible for people to even get into to see the doctors. Yeah, you know, our survey didn't look at that for the following reason. Um, that that is true, especially in rural areas, but physical access to buildings has improved dramatically since um, the ADA went into place. And our survey had to be short to ensure that we would get a good response rate. If you have a long survey, people just get tired and they just don't fill it out. And so our focus groups, um, and individual interviews had shown that most of the people we talked to physically getting into the building was okay. Um, certainly there are gonna be exceptions to that now, but that just wasn't one of the things we looked at in the survey. And lastly, uh, the attitudes of the physicians. Uh, yeah. uh, some expressed very ableist language. I, I even saw uh, one said mental retardation or more than one used that term at, at this yeah. stage. Astonishing. Yeah. And, or, and that people with disabilities, uh, some doctors said uh, they thought they were uh, entitled. Uh, you know, uh, they had that they seem to feel that people with disabilities had a, an attitude issue. Yeah, I think even one doctor said, you know, people with disabilities think that they can bring in their service animal like a service peacock or something like that, you know, which is ridiculous um, because it's it's very clearly laid out in um, in the law what service animals are allowed in healthcare settings. And trust me, peacocks are not among them, you know. <laughs> And um, oh, it, it was kind of appalling. So what you are talking about is the October 2022 Health Affairs article that again goes back to the 2018 focus groups that we did um, to again kind of give more flavor to why the survey findings we found um, are kind of especially troubling. And one of the most important things I think we report in that paper was that doctors kind of didn't want to see people with disabilities. Remember that only 56% of physicians strongly welcome people with disabilities into their practice. And so they figure out ways to get rid of us. <laughs> you know, um, they figure out ways to get us out of their practices. And um and that is something that is deeply troubling. Yes, it's, uh, it's uh, again, it's not confined to physicians and that's why it's so deeply embedded, I think. It's just how they've grown up and all of the images and, that they see uh, of people with disabilities, it makes them want to, like many other people, just keep them away. You know, they don't want to interact. They don't see their value. They don't see their full dimensionality. They don't see them being part of the community they need to serve and their own values as doctors. Uh, and that, that leads me, I wanted to get to your most recent book, uh, which also is very interesting to me. Uh, so it's uh, making their days happen. 
which is a look at uh, caretakers or personal assistants and their interactions with people with disabilities and how both sides try to create a relationship where dignity is foremost uh, on, the, on the table. And uh, as you so well put it in the interview I read, you know, the caretakers are seeing people in the bathroom and in the bedroom and in, in the kitchen in these very intimate settings as they try to take care of these people, often for very low wages and under very difficult conditions. So if you could talk about why you wrote that book and what, what you found, and then some of your ideas about how to deal with that situation. Okay, thank you so much for asking about that. Um, the book is, um, was inspired by my observations and it's kind of scary being a friend of mine because I end up writing about things that I observe with my friends. But my friend, Michael, who is quadriplegic from primary um, progressive multiple sclerosis, PPMS, and cannot move any part of his body below his neck. Um, I met him back in 2009. And about that same time, I met his primary, um, uh, his longest serving personal care assistant or PCA, whose name is Nalita. And so I dedicated the book to both Michael and Nalita. And the reason that I wrote it is as follows. Um, Michael, when I met him again in 2009, had a fixed income. Um, he was on SSDI, basically. That was all the money that he kind of had coming in and in addition to a small kind of disability pension. And he only had um, time to pay for a personal care assistant, a PCA, for three hours a day. Okay, so he had a PCA coming to his home from um, about six until 7.30 in the morning, and then at night from 9.30 until 11 p.m. And so sometimes during the rest of the day, he would literally go without food or water because he was unable to manage to get himself food or water. And so I thought to myself, he, he lives um, outside of Princeton in New Jersey, which is 250 miles from where I live. Um, but, you know, he and I would talk all the time um, and I would hear him say, well, I didn't have any food or, you know, water today. And I'd be thinking to myself, hmm, I'm a health policy expert. I should be able to help Michael figure this out. And so I started doing some research again. At this time, Michael was not part of the Medicaid program, which is, as you know, the public um, federal-state health insurance program for poor and disabled people, um, which is the primary public payer for paid personal assistance services. Let me parenthetically say that about 75 percent of personal assistance services in the United States are provided by family members. And I think, Larry, you said earlier that you were part of a family team caring for one of your relatives um, during my a long step. period of time, right? Yeah, my stepmother, yeah. Your stepmother, yeah. And so for people like Michael, who live by himself, who didn't have any family members or friends who could provide that unpaid 
quote unquote, informal personal care assistance. He needed to pay for it. And so what I um, was fortunate to be able to do was to get some funding from the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation to do a policy analysis of payment for personal assistance services for people who do not have informal caregivers who can provide that service. They also allowed me to use some of the funding to interview both consumers of these services and providers of these services who are mostly black and brown women, many immigrants, all low wage earners, um, often open for exploitation. Um, and try to weave together their stories about um, providing this essential service with the policy context and the payment context of doing so. Yes, so that's, uh, I think most people don't understand what's going on. Uh, as you point out in your book uh, and in the interview I read, there's maybe 50 million people right now who are staying at home. It's going to be rising as the baby boomers continue to age and hang around. <laughs> and uh, there's a certain number of people who are providing caretaking. There's also a certain number of people who are leaving every year. Uh, and this is a, inclusion at work is about jobs. There's, in fact, uh, opportunities in this field, but it's a difficult field because I know from the caretakers that work with my stepmother, I mean, they're often uh, working two or three patients a week uh, uh, in order to, uh, and one of them was actually living in her car. She didn't have enough money to afford a house. <laughs> uh, her name was Marcy and she'd pull up and her car was just full of stuff. <laughs> and she would stay with us for three nights. So she had a place to stay. And then she'd go to her next patient. So she had another place to stay, but she was effectively homeless, uh, which is staggering. Uh, and she's caring for an, an advanced Alzheimer's patient. Uh, and she had a wonderful spirit and she uh, you know, did a really great job, but it's like, <laughs> uh, so there's a, opportunity for people to work, but we really need to start to think about paying these people decent uh, wages. And as uh, you explained, there are sort of loopholes in this area that uh, allow, uh, you know, this is terrible situation to go on so they don't get overtime and they're not yeah. compensated. So that's why they're shifting from two to three jobs a week. Mm -hmm. Anyways, if you can go into that for our listeners. Yeah. They get more aware of this sort of awful situation. Absolutely. I mean, what Marcy is experiencing is an extreme end and horrible, but it's part of the same continuum that I've been talking about. And, and that is that my personal feeling is that people like Marcy and people like Nolita who care for Michael are much more important than the healthcare professionals. You know, these are the people who are on the front lines, who are feeding, bathing, dressing, toileting, um, doing, helping with basic mobility. These are the people who allow people with significant disability to live with dignity in their homes where they would want to choose to live. And um, only 4% of Americans um, want to go into nursing homes. They can no longer. And so 
we need to think about that, that only 4% of us really want to go into nursing homes. And so that means that multiples of millions of us don't and are going to need the Marcy's and the Alitas of the world um, to help us, um, us stay at home. So what you were talking about with the loopholes is that under the Obama administration, finally, the um, Fair Labor Standards Act protections started extending to personal care assistance. I won't go into the long history of this, but starting when the Fair Labor Standards Act was passed in 1938 under FDR, these kind of quote unquote domestic workers or what were eventually called companionship workers (laughs) were excluded from Fair Labor Standards Act protections. When they finally did get these protections, you know, so that they would be required to be paid overtime wages, the agencies and some state Medicaid programs said, oh, you know, we're not going to pay time and a half for people working more than 40 hours. And so they started cutting work hours per week to like 35 hours. And so that's why people like Marcy... And Melita always worked like two or three jobs, um, would have to go out and get second jobs because they couldn't get overtime pay. They were not allowed to go over like 35 or 40 hours a week, even if they wanted to do so. Um, So the situation has gotten even worse with the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, because if you think about it, many of the um, of the people who provide these sort of personal assistance services might have young children who might have been required to stay home from school during the height of the pandemic. They are often caring for their own relatives at home as well. Um, and guess what? They can find better wages down the street at, you know, a fast food restaurant or something like that. And so even though what I found in my interviews with these workers is that the vast majority, not all of them, but the vast majority actually love what they're doing because they care deeply for people. As they said to me, you have to be a people person to do this kind of work. Um, they many of them had a spiritual reason for doing it. Um, many of them came from a long lineage of women relatives and sometimes male relatives who did this kind of work. Their mothers, their aunts, their cousins um, did this kind of work. But they are ultimately pushed to a situation where they cannot financially afford it anymore because the wages are just so low. And so we are facing a crisis um, that is just, you know, years away of not having enough people in our country to be able to provide these services, especially now with um, attitudes towards immigrants, because so many of these workers are immigrants. Those who are undocumented are often at risk of exploitation because they may be hired in the quote unquote gray market, you know, the unofficial market where they don't get work papers and where the people who hire them try to pay them even lower wages than they should be getting. 
And so there is exploitation, but the way that we have managed to keep the number of workers that we've been able to keep people at home is because of immigrants. Um, but that is going to be an issue for us in coming years if we don't change some of our immigration policies. Yes, uh, and just a word about Marcy. She had worked at a country club, and so she used to do my stepmother's nails and used to do her hair. I mean, that wasn't in the job requirements, but it was yeah. just something she wanted to do to make I my stepmother feel better about herself. Yeah. You know. I, I heard that from a lot of the people that I would talk to, that they would spend time doing their client's hair, um, that that giving their client a sense of dignity, a sense of, of self-worth was really important to them in terms of their commitment to the job. And I want to make the transition back to the, the physicians. And I think that's something that I don't see in the comments uh, from the doctors, they don't get that what they're doing is stripping dignity from their patients. You know, when they're talking to the caretaker or talking to the parent, if they're dealing with uh, people with developmental disabilities, uh, they are doing something that is very wrong. <laughs> that the caretakers know this and the doctors don't. Uh, is disturbing to me. It, it, that is such an excellent point, and I agree completely, which is why I said a few minutes ago that I think in terms of preserving dignity for people with significant disability and preserving their lives, that the frontline workers, the direct care workers in people's homes are so much more influential in that dignity. So what... Uh, policy changes need to happen uh, to improve the situation with uh, physicians and people with disabilities so that they uh, align themselves with, I, I'm sure their real intention as physician is to take care of their patients. They just don't seem to have the training or awareness to be doing that. Yeah. Well, I think the first thing is simple. Get the right equipment. Um, <laughs> you know, they ought to just to get the wheelchair accessible weight scales because um as i say all the time this is a win 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 situation it's a win for the patients because they can transfer like you were talking about when your hip was so painful it was hard for you to get up, up and onto an exam table it would have been easy for you to go with gravity down and just sit on an exam table and then have the physician automatically lift you up but it's also true that there are some doctors who are shorter stature and some doctors who are taller stature and some doctors who are in between. And so if the doctors can adjust the exam table to be a height that's ergonomically best for them to do the exam, it's good for them. And then the final thing is that um, a profession with one of the highest rate of occupational injuries are practice assistants. And certified nursing assistants and because of back injuries from transferring patients. And so if doctors would just get this equipment in their offices, that would be a first place to, to go. I think then a second thing is education. And people always think when we talk about education that I'm talking about medical education or healthcare professional education. And certainly I am. 
But if we waited for the seven years that it takes to train an internist, you know, four years in medical school plus three years of postgraduate medical education, we're going to be waiting for generations until we get the number of doctors who have that kind of training. So I think that we need continuing medical education to require that disability be part of what physicians are taught about. And they should be taught about what are technologies to improve communication with people who have hearing loss, you know, because there are lots of technologies out there. Why don't you have an hour long session where you say, here are some, you know, options for you if you have patients who are deaf or hard of hearing, but you also have training about um, best practices in terms of absolutely talking directly to a patient with developmental disability rather than to the person who has come to the office with them. Um, and so I think that, um, that there are a number of things that need to happen along those lines. Well, I hope uh, that happens. Um, I, I did notice that there was economic incentives, tax breaks that they seem to be unaware of that would enable them to do that because they sit there and say, well, uh, only 10 to 15% of my patients theoretically have disabilities and in order to that exceeds and I brought a sign language interpreter and that cost me so much money. And I, so there, I mean, this reality, they, they have cost and they are unaware of the fact they could even get tax breaks to, right. to deal with some of the simple things like weighing people, which I, they put me on a chair after my surgery. I didn't know what they were doing. They said, well, we're going to weigh you. And, and they just yeah. sat me down and they weighed me. It's not really exactly. Yeah. So this is for private practices, you know, that there are tax credits that people can get, you know, obviously academic medical centers and big, huge providers can't get those tax credits. But I think that if doctors say that only 10% of their patients have disabilities, they're not looking at the statistics because 25% of American adults have disabilities. And obviously the number of children who have disabilities is smaller. Um, the accommodations that might be needed for those kids is, are gonna be different. Um, but especially with the aging of the 78 million baby boomers, um, doctors who see adult patients are gonna have a lot more people with disabilities in their practice over the next decades. Well, I, I want to thank you profoundly for the work you've been doing, and I know you'll continue to do. It's, uh, it's illuminating, it's eye-opening uh, for per people who have not experienced it or encountered it with the people they love that have disabilities. Uh, I'm sure it will provide them information and ideas of what they can do. Hopefully, physicians and uh, healthcare policy makers uh, uh, we'll look at this work and your, your research and the books and start to formulate new policies so that in a few years from now, you'll be able to do more research and discover that foundational change in this area because it affects millions and millions of people. And thank you for your time and, and all your good works. Well, thank you for having me, Larry. I appreciate it.